The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn to Genesis, the end of chapter 39. If you're visiting, we've been looking at the life of Joseph, which fills 14 chapters at the end of the book of Genesis. I've covered only a few of them now, coming into the fifth message, and I only plan about four or five more, so I'm going to be gliding over some text and not reading all of the contents of the remaining story of Joseph, but we will hit all the high points, I hope, in these coming weeks. I'm picking right up in the midst of things at the end of chapter 39. I always invite you to follow along in your Bible or the Pew Bible. And uh, we're finding Joseph in his new, dark, and difficult situation of prison. Verse 21 says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there and whatever was done there. He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now we continue in chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. One night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, why are your faces so cast down? And they said to him, we have had bad dreams. And there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes... I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in his hand. Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only please remember me. 
when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen from the land of the Hebrews, and here I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. This is the word of God. When I was a senior student in seminary, I had an experience that I recalled this week to think how much it sort of paralleled Joseph's experience here. I was taking a class in pastoral counseling, and the professor took the class and divided us into groups of four in order to do some practical exercises. He gave us a sheet with four different potential counseling scenarios, a problem that one would bring to a counselor and some suggestions of perhaps how the counselor would try to open this up and explore it with the needy person. Role-playing, in other words. Well, I was of a mind that this seemed like a rather artificial exercise, and I didn't see how it could really be that helpful. But then it fell to me to be the counselee in the first round of of four exercises. And uh, while I was scoffing at it, I thought, all right, I'll do my best with it. Let's see where it goes. The sheet said that I was a 60-year-old man who had never married and had no living relatives, and I'd been diagnosed with a very serious cancer that was likely to take my life soon. And I was depressed both spiritually and psychologically, that I would die soon. And my biggest problem presenting to the counselor was that I thought no one in the world would remember me. Who would remember me? Because I had no wife, no immediate relatives. Well, I had some experience with drama in my past, so I decided to give this my all. And uh, I really got into it, so much so that I almost forgot where we were and what we were doing as I presented my need to my classmate who was supposed to be my counselor. I really felt that I was this lonely single man as I tried to paint the bitter and difficult experience that I was in and the great fear of death and of dying uncared for and unloved. And so much was my intensity in that role play. I remember that day as we walked away from the classroom, my three friends were looking at me kind of like, boy, you really got into that, didn't you? 
I remember plaintively almost crying. My emotions were so invested in this as I appealed to the counselor at one point, who is going to remember me? I really wanted an answer. And I went away, at least based on what my counselor friend told me, unsure of what the answer was. Well, this was the question that Joseph asked a fellow prisoner here in Egypt in Genesis 40, verse 14, after interpreting the first dream, he said, knowing that this man would have a good outcome, he said, only please remember me so that when it goes well with you, you can mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison house. Will you just please remember me? And the text tells us the cupbearer did not, at least not for two years. Well, last week we left Joseph thrown into a pit, as he put it, for the second time. The first time he was in a literal pit out in the desert area where it was a hole in the ground where he was kept after his murderous brothers put him there and then sold him to a caravan of slave traders. But now he's been put into what he calls a pit, which is a prison and put there by unjust treatment by the immoral wife of Potiphar, who lied about him. By the way, many of us think Potiphar didn't really believe his wife or he would have executed Joseph, not just put him in prison. But in any case, he was in the prison. And it was seemed to be unjustified payoff for being a righteous, godly person. What kind of payoff is this? The Lord is with you and, yeah, by the way, we're going to throw you in, in prison because the Lord is with you. Constant repetition of that phrase in Genesis is the thing that Joseph held on to. The Lord is with me. I can see that. He has spared me every time the worst consequences that could have come. But here I am, wasting my, the years of my 20s, my young manhood. And this has got to be the lowest hour of my life. I seem to be abandoned not only by mankind, by my family, but even by God. And yet God keeps reminding me, whispering to me, that he is somehow with me. God, who moves the stars and the planets, can he not move the chess pieces of people in my life to set some different course to these events? If only this influential individual who's here would remember me, everything could change. But it didn't seem to be happening. And yet we know from our vantage point that there was a great mind behind all this that did remember Joseph. And Genesis 40 is proof today that our God has stored us in his memory as well, even when his activity on our behalf may not be visible and it might seem indeed as if we are completely forgotten. I want to move into this text with the first principle laid down in these words. God's revelation guarantees great promises for the future of every gospel believer. God's revelation guarantees great promises for the future of a gospel believer. In Joseph's case, that revelation was dreams. You remember he was the first one to have a pair of dreams that were told 
earlier in the whole thing. And those dreams actually, you could say, were the beginning of his troubles because they made his brothers angry and jealous. They confused his parents. But yet we have to look back and say those dreams were revelations from God, genuine revelation from the Lord, promises from the Lord. And we could see that they were leading to something that would say Joseph would stand in a place of great authority one day and people would literally bow before him and beg his favor to help them. We believe God was revealing the future in those dreams. As you study the Bible, you find that dreams had a role like this more commonly in the Old Testament than in the New. There are some significant dreams in the New Testament. You think of another man named Joseph who happened to be the would-be husband of Mary who had significant dreams that helped save the life of the infant Jesus. And there are a few other places. Peter had an important dream in the book of Acts. But for the most part, we see dreams moving off stage or out of the picture as the Bible advances. And that seems to be, as we try to add up a whole theology of revelation in the Bible, that more and more as the written Word of God was presented and was looked at and listened to, the prophets and the history books, and then, of course, the books of the New Testament, more and more that became the authoritative pathway of God's revelation, not so much dreams. But the idea that God could reveal himself is the important idea. And that is insisted on throughout the Old Testament, that the great difference about our God is that he can make things known. He can reveal things, reveal the future. Isaiah 41 has a challenge issued. Isaiah 41:23, the prophet Isaiah actually issues a rhetorical challenge to false idols made of wood and stone because he knows they can't reveal anything. He's, he's telling them, speaking to these deaf and dumb idols, saying, you tell us, please, what is to come hereafter so that we may know that you are gods. And he doesn't get any answer. He didn't expect one. Revelation comes from the true God. And dreams were one channel of it, at least in the Old Testament, before the written word of God was more front and center. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that once Christ had come, God's patterns of revelation would change. Hebrews 1.1 says that in many diverse ways, before Christ came, God revealed himself in the past. Dreams were one of those many ways. But when Christ came as the capstone of, of God's message and of what he had to say, then everything flowed more from the account of Christ and his cross and his salvation, his resurrection, and so on. Paul, in Romans 16, at the end of that great book of Romans 16.25, Paul says, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to revelation of the mystery kept secret for long ages, but now it is disclosed through the prophetic writings that are made known to all nations. There's a sense there that Paul is saying, let the written word of God take precedence now as it presents Christ and tells us about him. God did reveal himself and tell that he was going to do some great things in the life of Joseph through those two dreams. They weren't canceled out at all. They still stood as far as being predictions 
from the Lord, and Joseph certainly remembered them, but he had to wonder, how or when are they ever going to come about? Well, believers today have guarantees like Joseph had his dreams. We have bushel baskets full of promises from God throughout his word of what he is going to do in our lives, what he intends to do for those who trust in Christ, what his sure promises are. Every week in our service, we give you some short text, as John did today from First Timothy, a text giving an assurance, a promise. You can hang your hat on it, you hang your coat on it, and count on it. Here's something God will do, because he's the revealer of history, the revealer of our future, the promiser of things which he must keep. There's a passage in Another one in Isaiah 46 where God speaks about his role in this way as a revealer and says, I am God and there is no no other. There's none like me declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. I say my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Joseph's dreams were going to be fulfilled because they were revelations from God. And we, like him, have great promises that uh, our future is guaranteed as well. The great promise we looked at a month ago in our anniversary weekend. He who has begun his good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. That's a promise for a whole gathered church and for every Christian individual and many others like it. So God's revelation guarantees promises of the future for every gospel believer. But secondly, to go deeper into this text here with Joseph in prison and these two VIP prisoners, we don't know what they did wrong. Somehow they made Pharaoh unhappy. The cupbearer's whole role, this guy was probably an aristocrat in his own right who made it, it was a great honor. He probably had a whole outfit he wore and everything else to be the cupbearer because he was the guy who tasted the wine to make sure Pharaoh wasn't uh, the victim of a plot to poison him or something. Similarly with the baker making all his best delicacies for the, the plate of Pharaoh alone. They did something wrong to make the big guy unhappy. So here they are in prison. And as we think through Joseph's reactions with them, I find myself realizing that my trust in God through any kind of trial is far too dependent on what I think is visibly happening on my behalf right now. That God is working whether I recognize him working at the moment or not. God was working for Joseph even though almost nothing was visible along that line. If you go to Hebrews 11.27, the chapter that talks about the great hall of fame of great people of faith in the past. There's a line there that you will recognize when it praised Abraham's faith. And Abraham was praised as, quote, seeing him who is invisible. That is great faith. Knowing that God is our God, he's at work, he's accomplishing things even though we don't see what he's doing right now. We believe he is working for us. Well, I think Joseph's faith in that of seeing the one who was invisible was starting to slip. And he thought, all right, God is with me, uh, but 
it wouldn't hurt if I got a little human insurance, so I better tell this important cupbearer, please, sir, uh, you're going to get out of here. I've just told you that, and it's going to happen. Uh, when you get out, would you please whisper my name in high places so maybe Pharaoh would think I was somebody valuable to bring out of this jail where I don't belong? In other words, okay, I'll trust in God, but give me a human lifeline on this thing as well. If I did you a favor telling you what your dream was about, pay me back, please, with a good word when you get back to the court of Pharaoh. You see, Joseph was not quite trusting God here, was he? He was saying, I think God needs a little nudge. A nudge from a VIP couldn't hurt any. If Pharaoh puts in a good word, uh, that might activate God. I don't know if he thought that or not, but at least he didn't seem to be trusting God. He wanted to finagle a human deal here and grasp at something that would change his situation. Well, God didn't need a nudge, and he didn't need a, a political collaborator with him. He was active on Joseph's behalf the entire time, checkmating every negative development You know, there were things all along the way for Joseph that he could have died at any point. The brothers could have killed him. The slave traders could have sold him in some place where he'd be, you know, doing grueling hard labor and rocks would fall on him or something and kill him or maim him. Uh, All kinds of things could have happened that Joseph wouldn't have survived. And yet here he was with the text saying, every other paragraph, the Lord was with Joseph. Even though the appearance was God wasn't doing anything, the reality was God is at work, was at work. The God who moves planets about moved the chess pieces of Joseph's life, even though everything that was evil in the origin of its happening, God isn't responsible for the evil. He isn't responsible for the lust of Potiphar's wife. That was an evil thing. And yet she exercised that, and God turned the thing that it did not come out, ending in Joseph's death or something, which it could have quite easily. Instead, God was turning it towards good. I have a book at home that I would recommend to any of you. Many of you like the books of the late R.C. Sproul. One he wrote in the 1990s is called The Invisible Hand which you can think is what it was about. It was about providence, works of God's providence. It has a chapter on Joseph, among other things, in it, The Invisible Hand by Dr. R.C. Sproul. And he talks about God working behind the scenes, unseen, and yet he's the powerful one that keeps the worst thing from happening, makes the improbable thing topple the probable thing. And God, who is providence with a capital P, is fully engaged. Sproul discusses the fact that once our forefathers in early America and the Puritans, the word providence was written frequently. And it was so frequent that it was just a synonym for God. They would say, providence was with me. And they meant God was with them. Do we talk about providence today and mean God? I don't think we use the word at all unless we're headed for a city in Rhode Island. People don't know what providence is. God's providence, the invisible hand, was behind the scenes, moving things so that the climax of Joseph's life is really just about to happen now, even though it appears 
He's at the lowest point that he could possibly go to. Isn't it true that when we're in a bad place and we pray rather desperately to God, we're maybe not saying these exact words, but what we're thinking is, God, I want you to tear open the heavens and come down and change this thing. Get me out of this right now. Turn this thing around. Get me this job. Heal this disease right now. I need it. You can do it. Come on, God. Let's go. And then you walk away and say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. What kind of a God is he? Well, perhaps God answered your prayer by keeping some very terrible things from happening. Perhaps he was in process of answering your prayer because around the corner in six months or a year in your life was going to come something completely different that you never expected that you would look back and say, well, that was God after all. He didn't tear the heavens. He didn't come in lightning bolts. But he was there. He was working. He was on my side. We simply are not equipped to judge God's final outcomes for us until after the fact. Most of the time, we need to look back with hindsight, and finally we can say, oh, I see. God really was active after all. Just think about it. If, if we had our way, if, if we would get God to come on demand and bring the changes that we say have to come providentially in our lives, if we had been looking on the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, what would we have demanded? We would have said, God, let your son get off that cross right now, bring a phalanx of angels, kill all these Roman executioners, put these Jewish hierarchy, unjust, unholy people out of business, and change this whole thing right now. And what would that have resulted in? No cross of Jesus. No substitutionary atonement. No body to be resurrected the, the third day. We would have ruined it if God would have done it our way. We would have ruined the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to our demands. The invisible hand was working absolutely at the cross of Calvary. And in the silence of Jesus' body in the tomb, and in the wonderment of Easter morning, suddenly the invisible hand was not so invisible anymore. Well, in the third place today, consider the pledge of God's providence to every believer in Christ that is here. I know you don't sit around and read the Westminster Confession of Faith for bedtime reading, but all of you that have ever joined this church have a copy of it at home because we give it to you. It's a long creedal statement and it has some long complicated paragraphs, but they're all drawn from the Bible and they're very worth pondering sometimes. The Westminster Confession of Faith has this paragraph under the subject of the providence of God. Let me quote it. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a mouthful, isn't it? So much so I need a drink. 
as you weigh all of those concepts, it's telling you that the invisible hand is always at work, particularly at work on behalf of his people. And for us to demand and say, God, I need you to display your work right now. I need you to deliver this prayer request right now in this form on my schedule is the highlight of rudeness and arrogance and lack of faith. Psalm 105, verse 17, is a passage that's recounting some historical things in Psalm 105. And there it it mentions Joseph, and it says this, Joseph was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what the Lord had said came to pass. But the word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested him. Why? Why, God, did you have to test him? Why was it two more long years after the cupbearer got out of prison before he finally remembered What a stark time. You know, you think about the day after the cupbearer got out, Joseph must have been awake the next morning, cleaned himself up the best he could. He thought, the cupbearer's surely going to tell about me that by this afternoon I'll be out of here. I better clean up and get ready to meet Pharaoh. And then he thought that the next day and the next day. And by the fourth day, he stopped thinking it because no one came. The cupbearer had not remembered. Why did God, we say, make Joseph waste two more years doing nothing in a jail cell? Well, the only thing I can suggest to you is that God in his providence was preparing Joseph to be such a significant tool in his hand that he thought the tool needed some more sharpening and polishing before it was ready for use. 1 Peter 4.12 in the New Testament says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange is happening to you. All you have to do is read Joseph. We too easily claim that God has forgotten to work on our behalf. My health needs you right now, God, needs a, a reversal right now. My security, my family, my bank account, I need you to do this. Lord, have you forgotten me that you're not acting? Please rescue me. Change my circumstances right away. Well, suffering shows what kind of people we are before God. Do we turn in upon ourselves in self-pity and lose our cross-centered new life in Christ? Trust Or do we endure, saying, I don't see my Father's work right now, but I know He's a God of the hidden hand, and He certainly must be working, doing something. He's with me in these pains. I can't figure it out at the moment, but I'm sure He's working. I think the cupbearer forgetting about Joseph was not so unusual in the way in which I forget to do things I tell people I'm going to do all the time. How many times have you talked with a friend on your way out of church and they told you a story and you said, I'll pray for you? Uh Uh-huh. Did you pray? Did you call them up in two days and say, I've been praying for you? How is that going? There is one who does not and cannot 
forget his saved people who belong to him by grace through the blood of Christ in the name of Jesus. Isaiah 49:15 is the verse I'm going to close with today that gives us some words of Jesus, believe it or not. You say, wait a minute, Isaiah, that's Old Testament. Jesus didn't speak in Isaiah. Oh, yes, he did. Isaiah 49, 15 has this to say. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Think of that question that's being asked. Of all the human relationships in the whole world, is, is there any closer bond than between a mother who has given birth to a child she's now nurturing and caring for every hour of the day? Can you imagine her just, well, we do hear things on the news when people are on drugs and everything else, but, but can you in normal circumstances imagine a mother forgetting that she has a nursing child? Isaiah poses that. Can a woman forget her nursing child? He says, well, she might even forget. But then he starts speaking for Jesus. Yet I will not forget you. For behold, I have you engraved on the palms of my hands. Jesus Christ bears the scars of the nails in eternity because his people are engraved on the palms of his hands. And that includes you. Thanks be to God. Our Father... What a story as we think of ourselves in Joseph's place. Certainly he was getting a little desperate. What a terrible place to be in your young 20s, not yet 30 years old and rotting in a jail, watching other people come and go and no one remembering you. We can imagine a man would go crazy in that if not for the fact that you, our God, have said, I will remember you. I have you engraved on the palms of my hands. I pray for those who are waiting today. Some unsolved thing has made them assume everything's against them. Their only possible outcomes are all look negative and you're not working. Will you turn them around to show them that you are and show them that you have them engraved on the palms of your hands? For Jesus' sake, amen.